Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, we'll look at the challenges in higher education. Rather than college administrators, presidents, and faculty doing what's right and telling their students to grow up, they're actually coddling them. That's why the American public doesn't have any confidence in every tower anymore. And proactive efforts to renew love and trust and affection in the parent-child relationship. God has granted us more influence in our kids, but we're unwittingly frittering that influence away. Plus... Pastor John MacArthur on his church's efforts to stand up for the essential nature of the church. We fight every battle for the truth, for the purity of the church. That's worth defending for the sake of people's eternal souls. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the issue of higher education. So many of the destructive intellectual trends that we see today are rooted in ideas that dominate today's public universities. But our private Christian universities have, in far too many cases, capitulated as well. Or at least they have made compromises that are going to be very difficult to correct. Everett Piper was one of the earlier private school leaders to assertively push back. The previous president of Oklahoma Wesleyan was a guest on my program. You also say that uh, your concern was that the ivory tower was becoming the Tower of Babel almost overnight. You decided you weren't going to let that happen there. What did you do at your own uh, university to to combat that, and what did you advise those who are in that present situation? Even now, some of your colleagues who are still in the trenches at these universities, how do they fight this? Well, I decided to take it on. I, I as yeah. you know, I wrote an open letter to my students right. uh, at Oklahoma Wesleyan, and I I said, if you want to be coddled rather than confronted, if you want to be comfortable in your immaturity rather than to be challenged to grow up and think more deeply, which is what I thought college was for, you need to go someplace else. I'm not going to do that here. And then I concluded in my open letter, and I said, my land, this is a university. It's not a daycare. And that went viral. Well, what's it have to do with this story we're hearing about today, this Gallup poll? Well, it it was then in 2015 that the American people were giving a 56% approval rating to higher education. 56% of the Americans felt that higher education was worthy back in 2015. Well, today, as you said in your opening comments, it's down to 36, 37%, a 21 or 20% point drop. Why? Well, it's because our universities are continuing to double down on dumb. We are hearing about critical race theory and the 1619 Project and, and Black Lives Matter and social emotional learning and the alphabet soup nonsense of LGBTQIA, and women are being told that they can't even have their own sports and their own bathrooms anymore because dysphoric men are stealing what should be rightfully a woman's. And this is all happening since 2015. So rather than college administrators, presidents, and faculty doing what's right and telling their students to grow up, they're actually coddling them, and they're reaping the consequences of doing so. That's why 
uh, the American public doesn't have any confidence in the ivory tower anymore. And at what point will they wake up or will they? I'm thinking right now of uh, Bud Light. He's constantly seeing new figures uh, of the uh, amount of money that has cost that corporation uh, and uh, also others as well in the in the uh, business world. Uh, where is the fear factor that these people will not stand up and say, we're not going to go along with this refashioning of our culture and the values that it has? You know, it's a, it's a great question. How, how bad does it have to get? Yeah. I mean, it's down to 36% of the American people saying that they believe in higher education right now. Uh, that's terrible. That's terrible. The ivory tower, the academy, college and university used to be the the it, the door through which you walk to change your life, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to go out and uh, realize the American dream because you dared to get an education. And now Dylan Mulvaney, a man, is being celebrated by Bud Light as a woman on a beer can. I mean, it's just crazy talk. And it, what's the correlation between the Bud Light story and the and the, the and colleges and universities? Well, there's a clear correlation. And here it is, very simple. What's taught today in the classroom is always going to be practiced tomorrow in our culture. Why did we see that Bud Light story and the Target story and all this nonsense going on? It's because we've been teaching these terrible ideas, yep. this nonsense, yep. in our colleges for decades, and it's reaping. It, it, we're reaping the consequences of it in our culture. I love what some of your letters said. I wish folks uh, had a chance to read it and hear it in its entirety. But you told them back then you confronted self-absorption, characterized by uh, characterizing the material, the millennial generation, reminded your students that the goal of a classical liberal arts education is not a participation. I love your sentence here. You said, I told them a good lecture is supposed to make them uncomfortable. And I found that to be the case when I certainly was at college and university. Uh, we need to be challenged, and yet these young people, uh, this ill prepares them for any kind of challenge when they get out, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, take it to the church, even. I mean, a good sermon is supposed to make you feel guilty, I would argue. I mean, <laughs> the, goal, the goal of a good sermon is that you confess your sins, not that you feel good about yourself. I mean, it's moral therapeutic deism that's that's prevailing in the church today is part and parcel of the same problem. Um, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. That's straight out of the book of Proverbs. There's a sharpening process through tension and through um, adversity. How many times did your coach tell you, no pain, no gain? Yeah. How many times did your dad tell you, get back on the horse? We've heard these axioms over and over again because – we grow up, we become stronger through adversity, and we're protecting our children today from any negative consequences or anything bad through this radical helicopter parenting. And college education today is nothing but a participation trophy rather than going and actually learning something and becoming an adult. We really do need to see a renewed sense of convictional leadership from private Christian universities. But more fundamental than that, we need to see renewal of parental leadership in the home. In fact, in far too many homes, there is a distance between parents and children, particularly through the teen years. Jeff Shatt has started a mentoring ministry and a book titled One Rule Home. He was a guest of Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. You're talking if there's a parent or a grandparent or someone has a niece or nephew, chances are you're talking to somebody today that's listening on this program that could be very frustrated because 
It used to be 30, 40 years ago, you could protect your children in your home. Today, you can't because the infiltration that comes in in social media, programming, television, movies, is just over the top. Give us a little bit of a word of encouragement because a lot of parents just think there's not a way to just protect and get to these teenagers, these kids. Talk about that. Well, I think one of the things that was fascinating in all the research I did with 3,000 kids is we're looking at the problem as being all of this stuff that's coming from the world and that the world basically is taking our kids away from us. And what we found from talking to the kids was the opposite was true, that our kids at one point felt very close to us. And then as they got older and things changed in the relationship between them and their parents and the expectations increased and their parents were disappointed or frustrated or upset because they were missing those expectations, the kids retreated from the parents, went to hide in the rooms, and got bored. And when they got bored, then they turned to – because when I grew up, I could ride across Palatine, Illinois, on my bike to the mall by myself at age 10. Mm -hmm. Today, without that, with the fear that we have of and trying to protect our kids, they get trapped in their rooms, they get bored, they turn to the video games and social media. And what we found is what caused was the breakdown in the parent-child relationship, that God has granted us more influence in our kids than the world will ever have, but we're unwittingly frittering that influence away and in in unexpected ways handing it to the world, which was what was stunning to me as a father because I was totally on the camp of I had to prevent my kids from accessing the world, and I was totally in the camp of traditional parenting. And then as I talked to these kids and brought it back to my kids, and I said, hey, do you see me? When these parents, these other kids see their parents, my, my kids were basically like, heck yeah, dad. And I was slapped in the face that I looked nothing like Jesus to my own kids. You know, if we go back to most of us when we were kids, it was a time where in many cases, it certainly was a one parent working family, predominantly mom was at home, homemaker or there for the kids. Books were the daily uh, recreation or going outside and playing. And then, you know, meals together, families together. So there was a cohesiveness. Today, my word, the divorce rate and mom's working, dad's working. Everybody's got these different interests. We can watch. We got five people in the home. You can be watching five different programs, platforms. There's nothing to bring everybody together. So how do we begin to relate on this level that your research has showed you? Yeah, what was fascinating was that, you know, as we began to wrestle with the research and change what we did in our home, we saw our kids' hearts return to us, and we saw them come out of their rooms and want to spend time with us, where they were in their rooms on their own devices That was more a function, according to our research, of the breakdown in the relationship where our kids couldn't figure out how to be close to us. They wanted to be close to us, but because of our approach with them, it was we were pushing them away. They were feeling hurt. They were trying to avoid us, so there wasn't more conflict or more disappointment or more falling short. And so when we began to change that dynamic and approach issues the way Jesus did, and they felt that safety with us again, they 
they self-selected, came out of their rooms, off their devices, and started doing things with us as a family again. And it was, it was, you know, it was something that was almost hard to believe, but we've seen it with hundreds and hundreds of families since, since we've been out and doing seminars in churches, because the kids desperately want to be close to us. Our, what our research found was they want to be close to us. They don't know how to get back to being close with us. And the kids that were on drugs, the reason they were on drugs is they had come to the conclusion they couldn't be close to their parents and they couldn't please them. And so they were on drugs trying to escape the pain of not being able to get that connection with us again. They're lonely. These kids are lonely. And they're lonely predominantly because of the way we've been interacting with them. Coming up, the essential nature of the church. We fight every battle for the truth, for the purity of the church. That's worth defending for the sake of people's eternal souls. John MacArthur, when the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company, like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, Long time no see. No can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. We have looked today at the critical place of the university, focused perhaps on the private Christian university in the development of our young adults. We've looked as well at the centrality of the family. We'll look now at the essential nature of the church. The writer of Hebrews was pretty clear when he challenged the church, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but by encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And yet, throughout the COVID chapter, so many really did abandon in-person worship. John MacArthur is the voice of Grace to You Ministries and the pastor of Grace Community Church. He was a guest of Eric Metaxas, talking about the new documentary, The Essential Church. I have to say that, you know, yours was one of the braver voices uh, in the last few years. And I'm thrilled that somebody uh, tells the story in this film, The Essential Church. For my audience that's not familiar with it, would, would you just share the, the basic storyline of what happened to you and to your church when uh, the COVID madness was launched in this country? 
Well, I think California was one of the most extreme states in trying to handle COVID. So they basically said lockdowns, you know, all of that, masks, distancing. And this then hit the churches. They shut the churches down while they left the casinos and the the marijuana places and um, some of the strip clubs open because they were essential. And it was at the same time that the BLM riots were happening everywhere. And you, you could uh, you could uh, put your mask aside and go to a riot, but you, you couldn't go to church. So we were hit pretty hard by that. And we thought if there's a real pandemic here and people are going to die, the church needs all the more to be open because you're cutting off a lifeline where spiritual truth is going to be desperately needed for people who think they're liable to die, and, and some actually will. So um, what do we do? Well, for the first few weeks, we we just kind of said, well, you know, we, this, maybe this is true. Maybe we're all, we're all going to perish. But after a few weeks, we knew that wasn't the case. So we, um, we decided to open the church. We just opened it with no mask, no, no distancing, no nothing. We didn't follow any of the protocols whatsoever. So the state came after us kind of with a vengeance. The county of Los Angeles, the health department, the, the governor, Newsom, the state, to try to shut us down. They threatened to take away our property, our parking lot. Uh, they were relentless. They fined me. They were laying out week by week additional prison sentence times. And we decided, look, we've got to react. So we we sued them on the basis of a violation of the First Amendment. And that launched this long, drawn-out thing that went on for about a year and a half. They kept postponing and postponing and postponing the hearing 12 times because the judge kept saying, you guys can't deal with the facts of this issue until you climb the mountain of the First Amendment. You You've got to deal with the First Amendment. Well, they they didn't want to do that. So finally, we demanded, okay, we want a trial. No more hearings. We want a trial. And the first thing we're going to do is depose the county supervisors who are in charge of all this and all the health officials. Okay, we're going to depose the health officials, and we're going to make them tell the truth. 24 hours later, they rolled over, gave us everything we wanted, picked up $3.5 million of legal fees. They gave us a permanent injunction that the county and the state can never come against Grace Church again in the future. How did we get that? Because we threatened to depose them and make them tell the truth about COVID. And in order to protect themselves from doing that, they forked over. I mean, they wanted to close us. Instead of that, they gave us a permanent opening and paid $3.5 million. You know, part of this is that this lie has crept in to American Christendom that we're not supposed to fight back. We're not supposed to be political. We're not supposed, we're just supposed to roll over and do what the government tells us to do, which is utterly unbiblical. Uh, but there are so many in the church that have really imbibed this lie and they privatized their faith. And they would say, Oh, you know, that's uh Pastor MacArthur, he's a hothead uh, suing the government. Whoa, he's supposed to be, you know, friendly, making friends with everybody. What do you say? What do you say to folks like that? Well, well, first of all, I I never made friends with everybody, you know, my whole life because I preached the gospel. And the first message of the gospel is you're going to perish and end up in eternal judgment if you don't come to Christ. That's about as offensive a message as you could give. And that's where the gospel starts. But um, beyond that. 
we have to, I mean, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. We have to tell the truth. So th this is what I can answer your question with one illustration. When we first did that, one of the leading evangelical organizations in the country wrote against us and said, why is MacArthur doing this? This is a, this is a virus. This, I mean, this is not where to, this is not the hill to die on. Wait for the big battle, uh, you know, save your ammunition for, for the homosexuals when they come after us or whatever it is. And my answer was, look, people said to me, how do you decide which battle to fight? And my answer is we fight every battle. We fight every battle for the truth, for the purity of the church. Doesn't matter what it is. It's the it's the little battles that when they accumulate, you end up with a, a liberal, non-existent church over time. We fight every battle. We earnestly contend for the faith, and that's right out of the New Testament. I mean, we're told to do that. So it's not that we're angry about it. It's that the church and the truth is, if anything, is worth defending. That's worth defending for the sake of people's eternal souls. And what do you make of the idea that so many in the church missed it? Uh, in other words, they did not stand up the way you did or Pastor Che Ahn did or Jack Hibbs or Rob McCoy. There are a number of folks who understood we need to stand against this, that this is the biblical stand. We need to stand and, and pay a price if need be. But the majority, it seems to me, in the church did not. And it's it's a shameful moment in the church. And I guess I wonder if some of them are getting it now. They're waking up. Are they repenting of their inaction? What is your sense of how that happened? You know, I, I think this goes back to the feminization of the culture. And it ends up with the feminization of the church. You just have you have too many weak men, too, too many men who have been influenced by the raison d'etre uh, the the current zeitgeist, you might say, of this culture, um, that men have, have been, you know, just emasculated, and that shows up in the church. I mean, you've got you've got weak leadership, such weak leadership in the church. I mean, look, if if you don't think we have weak leadership, look at the president. I mean, that's the best we can do for the entire nation. That this is this is. Talk about beta male. I mean, I don't know where that is in the alphabet, but it's far down below that. So there's just a dearth of strong men. You know, the New Testament says, act like men, be strong, be courageous. And it isn't that you do that to protect your own investment or your own ministry. It's you do that because you're standing for God's truth. It's a much higher, it's a transcendent cause. But it takes some courage and conviction. The courage is not something you have to muster. If you love the truth, if you believe the truth with all your heart, you, you end up defending it. Coming up, what is the purpose and meaning of this life? If you take the civilizational moment we're in, obviously the West has as its central dynamic the Jewish and Christian faiths. And yet the West has rejected the faiths that made it. Oz Guinness, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. 
go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. That moment when the sun peeks over the horizon, when the sea breeze kisses your cheeks, when the sun's rays warm your soul, when you're grateful to be right here, right now, that's the moment you know that the little things in life are the big things. Massachusetts, take a moment. Plan your getaway at visitma.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. As we watch the direction of our country and our culture today, it would be all too easy to be discouraged or disheartened. Indeed, there is much to be concerned about, but the veteran writer and scholar Oz Guinness is not shrinking back at all. Instead, he's making the case for Christ anew and afresh once again. Oz has a new book. The title, The Great Quest, Invitation to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. He was a guest of Eric Metaxas. The question of meaning has been important to you. Where should we start? Well, Eric, this book is for individuals who are searching, who are seeking. But for me, the big picture of the Western world is the background. Because if you take the civilizational moment we're in, obviously the West has as its central dynamic the Jewish and Christian faiths. And yet the West has rejected the faiths that made it. So it's a cut flower civilization. And the question is, can the West be renewed? So people need to grapple with what it is that actually made the West. Now, the same thing in many ways is true for America. And we see this rising tide of religious nuns, people with receding faith. But obviously, many of them have no idea that the faith they've left was considered true. Now, if it was true, People should believe it even if there's no one but themselves left. If it was false, they should never have believed it, even if everyone else believed it, and so on. So there's an extraordinary cultural dimension to all this. But my purpose is individuals, individuals who are seeking. So when you talk about the West, you're talking about Christendom. There's, of course, great irony and tragedy in the idea that uh, – the West, uh, unlike any civilization since the beginning of the world, gave us all of the things that we praise, uh, the, the, the sanctity of the individual, the idea that r- racism is a bad thing. There's so many things that Christendom gave us in the context of the West and Europe. And maybe I can ask you, we can begin, what is it? within uh, the West, within Western Christendom, that would lead uh, to people hating the very things uh, th- that gave them their values. It's, 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 there's something bizarre about it. It's like a snake swallowing its own tail. It doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense. So what is it that the seeds of our destruction are, are sort of, uh, they're, they're there in the, in the best of Western Christendom? Well, I think the first great rival to the Christian faith was the Enlightenment. 
And if you look at the aggressive secularism that's grown up since then, there are really three impulses. One, we don't want God. And you can see that particularly in the French Revolution and all the radical movements that have come out of that. In other words, throne and altar, church and state were united, both corrupt, both oppressive, and the revolution threw out both. We don't want God. The second impulse is we don't need God. Modern prosperity through technology and capitalism and so on. We've got so much to live with. Why on earth do we bother to think of what we're living for? And then the third impulse is the more recent one through DNA and stuff like that. We can replace God. You take Yuval Harari, Homo Deus. Now put those together. You've got a powerful, aggressive secularism, which is out to replace the Jewish and Christian faiths as the dynamic of the West. Now, they won't do it because without God, those things collapse in the long run. But they're trying to. Beyond them, I mentioned that you've got various radical movements. No, please continue. Uh, When you say various radical movements, to what are you referring Well, when I say secularism, it's not against the West. It's against the Christian faith, but trying to replace the Christian faith in the West. But if you look beyond that, I call them the color waves. You've got a red wave, a rainbow wave, a black wave, and a gold wave. And each of them in many ways is not only anti-Christian, but anti-Western. So the red wave is clearly classical Marxism and then cultural Marxism. The rainbow wave, quite obviously, the LGBT sexual revolution. And the black wave, the term that is used of everything that grew up of a radical Islamism since the Iranian revolution in 1979. And then the gold wave, the way that so many of our elites are buying actually into ideas that come from the Chinese Communist Party in their attempts to do business with them and so on. So There are very radical movements around, all of them against the Jewish and the Christian faiths. Coming up, a biblical perspective on what it means to be human. Every single human being has dignity and worth because made in the very image and likeness of God. More with Oz Guinness when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. What is the meaning and purpose of our life? That is a timeless question people have asked for millennia. Whether consciously or subconsciously, people are searching for meaning. Philosophy seeks to provide an answer. The great religions seek to provide an answer. Christ, through the unfolding narrative of Scripture, offers an answer as well. Let's pick up with Oz Guinness and Eric Metaxas talking about the great quest. And, you know, philosophy is incredible. It's basically thinking about thinking. And good philosophy is 
Good thinking about thinking. But philosophy after 3,000 years doesn't come up with the great answers. And the simple fact is, you have to go to the great worldviews, the great philosophies of life, the great religions. And when you do that, there are broadly three great families of faiths, the Eastern, Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age movements, secularism, atheism, agnosticism, materialism, and so on. And then, of course, the Abrahamic, supremely in the West, Judaism, and the Christian faith with their notion of an infinite personal God. And depending which of the families of faiths you choose, you get decisively different answers. And one of my constant arguments is contrast is the mother of clarity. Say the biblical view. Every single human being has dignity and worth because made in the very image and likeness of God. The very highest view of dignity there is. Now, in other words, in the biblical view, we're defined upwards in relation to God, not downwards. You know, I lived in Oxford very close to Richard Dawkins and in a house very close to Desmond Morris, the author of The Naked Ape. But you take things like The Naked Ape or The Selfish Gene and the way if we define ourselves downwards as animals or machines or whatever, we frustrate ourselves. The only way to be really deeply fulfilled is to see that we're defined upwards in terms of our creator and we're made in his image. So the answers come out incredibly differently. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times that the, that the new book, The Great Quest, uh, is, is for individuals looking for the meaning of life. And at some point you say it's, uh, it's an adventure. At least you begin there. So what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not, it's not an argument that sets out proofs for the Christian faith. And I personally believe the theistic proofs and so on don't work. And to the degree that some people think they work, they don't take you to the Lord God whom we really know as the God of Abraham and the father of Jesus Christ. So I'm not setting out proofs, but describing the journey. And particularly for thinking people, the four phases of the journey. So a lot of people haven't even started. They haven't got to phase one, which is a time for questions. Phase two, a time for answers. Phase three, a time for evidences. And phase four, a time for commitments. But each of those has to be thought through in its own uh, pace and its own time so that people can move along. But there's no guarantee. In other words, I've set out the path, but each person has to follow it for themselves. So it's not a book you sit in an armchair come to the last page and you're convinced of an argument. No, it's a prospectus of setting out a journey. It may take five minutes, it may take five years or 50 years, but a journey which thinking people must take for themselves to think through the meaning of life. I, I have the idea that we're living in a, in a society that um, because of prosperity and technology, we can be endlessly distracted from thinking about the very things that you say are central. Uh, in your experience, what would lead someone uh, to, to want to be a little bit deliberate about asking these questions? Seasons of life is one thing. And then, as you said, there are crises. But then thirdly, you have what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the crowbar of events. But my interest is mostly in the last one, 
which my mentor, you know him too, Peter Berger, calls signals of transcendence. People have experiences which puncture what they used to believe and point them to something which would have to be true if that experience is meaningful. And so to follow it, they set out as seekers, signals of transcendence. The most famous, of course, in the last century was C.S. Lewis, the atheist who was surprised by joy, but he couldn't explain joy as an atheist, not happiness, not pleasure, joy. And to find out what it was, he became a seeker, as you know, for more than 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that that Lewis does r- write about that. I mean, but he was particularly thoughtful, you know, as as people go. Um, but it, it is interesting that he did have in, in his life what uh, you say Peter Berger calls signals of transcendence, that they sort of hints and clues that, that began him on a journey. Uh, and he was intellectually honest and willing to go on that journey, and that's the question, what is the meaning of life? Is there meaning to life? Many people uh, are not asking that question until something happens, and then suddenly they wonder, what's it all about? And is it possible that it's all about nothing? So I assume you you deal with that question uh, as well. Well, I also deal with the way you began this section, and why people don't think. In other words, if Socrates is right, The unexamined life is not worth living. Many, many, you can almost say most people in America are leading lives not worth living. They haven't thought enough and cared enough to start thinking. And that's the tragedy. Well, if someone reaches stage one, a time for questions, life is called into question for them. That's what constitutes the seeker. Stage two, logically, a time for answers. And that's when they look for the big answers that I described earlier, the, the, the big families of faiths. And that stage is very comparative. If you choose this one or that one, would it answer my questions? Would it make a difference that I'm looking for? It's very comparative. And the quest is for something that's illuminating and adequate. But the third stage, all right, I'm attracted to an answer. It truly looks adequate and highly illuminating to my question, stage three, a time for evidences. The big question, this one, as you know, is controversial today, is it true? And despite all the nonsense of postmodernism, that's still a fundamental and absolutely necessary question. The question is, is it true? Coming up, is my worldview grounded in truth? So much of life assumes and requires truth. And for faith, it's incredibly important because it's the ultimate reason to believe. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Tuning into the baseball game, monitoring the incoming storm, catching your favorite talk show. These are just a few of the reasons more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. And did you know AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times? It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. 
As we discuss today the great quest and meaning and purpose in life, we turn now to the most fundamental issue. Is it true? Is my worldview, or yours for that matter, grounded in truth? Once again, Oz Guinness with Eric Metaxas. You were just touching on um, a time for evidence. In, in other words, people ask questions, they examine various options. So now the question is, uh, what do they find? So much of life assumes and requires truth. And for faith, it's incredibly important because it's the ultimate reason to believe. We ultimately believe because we are convinced that it is true, as I said earlier. And if it's true, it'd be true if nobody believed it. If it's false, it would be false if everybody believed it, because it's true. Now, there are two main ways that people look into that. G.K. Chesterton is an example of one way, looking at it the big picture way. And if you read Chesterton's description of his coming to faith in his book, Orthodoxy, it's almost like Archimedes Eureka. Suddenly he sees how this huge spike fits into a huge hole in the universe and all the nuts and bolts fit into place. And they click, 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 and his prose gets incredibly animated and exciting. It's a big picture coming together. And many people are like that. The alternative is C.S. Lewis. Again, as you know, when one of his friends, a hard-boiled atheist, challenged him to read the Gospels. He read them, and he'd never discussed them and read them as a literary critic that he was. And when he did that close-up examination, of course Jesus was an incredible teacher ethically, but he also said theological things which were obscene if they weren't true. Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? And Lewis looks at the evidence of all this and is convinced it is, in fact, that Jesus was who he said he was. And it was the close-knit, close-up evidence that convinced him and made him, as he said, the most reluctant convert in England. He didn't want it to be true. He wanted his independence. But he was convinced by the truth. He was the hardest-boiled atheist at Maudlin. And they were discussing all sorts of things. And he said, Jack, have you ever looked to the Gospels? And Lewis said, no. But he was rather shaken because it was a hard-bitten atheist who told him to do that. And he, as a professional literary critic, literary historian, hadn't looked at the Gospels the way he looked at other literature. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, and never miss these and other great conversations. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. She ran